Um, it's, a, it's an honor to be with you this morning. My name is Pastor Kevin. I am one of the uh, pastors on staff here at Kalamazoo First. And this morning, we are going to be spending some time looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, which you may know as the Lord's Prayer. In fact, many of you, like myself, maybe have memorized this prayer at one point in your life, maybe as a child, maybe as when you were older. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful prayer, a meaningful prayer. And in fact, it's such an important prayer that it, it made me wonder, you know, have we truly ever contemplated how it relates to how we live as followers of Jesus? You know, when I was younger, I would read the beginning of that prayer where Jesus says, this is how you should pray. But I was left thinking to myself, this sounds good, but besides actually reciting it or memorizing it, what do I actually take away from it? For all of us here, I'd probably guess that not many of us actually pray this prayer every day. If you do, that's awesome. If you don't, though, there's probably a lot of us that don't. So what do we do with this prayer that Jesus says that we should pray? Well, to help us figure that out this morning, I want to dive deeper into this prayer and look at what the ideas and the language that Jesus used meant during his time, which will help us to then understand what it means for us today. You know, understanding this context is important because there can be cultural gaps in our understanding. You know, for example, when older generations talk about walking miles uphill in the snow to get to school, I understand what you're saying. I don't know if I fully believe it or not, but I haven't, I wasn't there to experience, to live it, so I understand it, but I don't fully grasp it. You know, for us millennials in the room, this sound, see if you guys get ready for it, there's a sound that all of us know as millennials that will drive you crazy, and it's the sound, I don't know if it's going to play or not, but it's the sound of dial-up internet. Who remembers the sound of dial-up internet? There it is. Does that bring back uh, this, this dread, you know, the dread of, when is this going to be done? When is this going to work? Now, if I were to play that sound for our kids down in the ministry center, there might even be some Gen Zers in the room who are like, what in the world did I just hear? You know, they're like, what is this sound? Well, if I could explain to them what that sound is, right, that we had slow dial-up internet back when I was younger, but for them to truly grasp it or to experience it, they, they, they didn't have that, right? So it's this, it's this concept they can understand, but they can't fully grasp or understand completely. And so that cultural difference between generations, we experience it today, but we also see that within Scripture sometimes because there are cultural uh, references being made that we hear, that we may even understand, but we don't always fully grasp because of a difference in culture. It takes a little bit more study to understand the depth behind some certain phrases or ideas that we read. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we have a few of these situations where this can come into play. Now, please don't let this discourage you because whether we understand those things or not, we can still understand what Jesus is sharing and, and saying. But when we are aware of it, we can dive deeper then into his words and his message. And so with this understanding, we'll see that Jesus' pattern for prayer is actually an invitation into Jesus' own prayer life and then kingdom perspective, which keeps God as the foundation of our life as we express adoration to him Intercede on behalf of his kingdom 
and petition our needs then to him. And so I would actually like to invite you this morning to read along with me Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And I have the NIV version because that's what I memorized growing up. For some of you here, you're probably used to the the highs and the these and the halves. I didn't get that, unfortunately. Um, But I'd like to invite you just to, to read this with me this morning together. So let's go ahead and do it, starting with verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So before we break these verses down, it's helpful to notice why Jesus gives us this pattern for prayer. You know, if you look earlier in the passage, you'll find that Jesus is concerned with inward righteousness. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about benevolent giving, fasting, and then lastly, prayer. And in verses 5 through 8, right before our passage this morning, Jesus critiques two types of prayers. The first is a selfish prayer that is done out of a desire to bring attention onto ourselves. We try to make ourselves look holy or spiritual. And the second type of prayer that Jesus critiques is a performative prayer, where we try to be overly eloquent with our words in hopes that we may convince God, you know, through our carefully crafted words to listen or to do what we're asking. Anyone guilty of either of those two prayers? I may have been myself. I'm one of those. But leading into those verses of 9 through 13, Jesus is essentially stating that we should be doing these things out of a kingdom-oriented mindset rather than for personal gain. It's about having a heart of humility rather than a spirit of selfishness. And so after addressing these different topics, he then gives the pattern for prayer, the Lord's Prayer. But once again, we ask, why? What does it mean? How do we apply this? Well, when we look back at the passage, we notice that the first portion of the prayer is focused on God. Jesus uses a lot of you language, right? He says, may your kingdom come, your will be done. But then on the second part of that verse, he shifts towards us. And by doing this, Jesus is giving us a pattern that invites our whole attention and imagination to focus on God and his kingdom. And if we start with that, then the prayers that come from that place will be based on his reality, not on our circumstances. And once we foster that attitude, we can then move from God's reality to then inviting God into our reality as Jesus does in that second portion of his prayer. And this is important because at the most basic level, we define prayer as talking to God or talking with God, which it is. But I like how Paul Miller describes prayer as not just talking, but he defines prayer as life with God. And so prayer is the medium through which we experience and connect with God. Prayer isn't just something we do when we need help or to to check in with someone like we would with a friend or a family member. Although it does do those things, even more than that, it helps us to step into a kingdom-oriented reality that Jesus invites us to embrace as his children. 
When I was, um, I think, in eighth or ninth grade, I, my, my children's pastor, he was a, a big mentor in my life. It's probably why I became a, or a part of the reason why I myself became a kid's pastor. He poured into my life, was a, was a great mentor. I love him a lot. And he ended up moving to Chicago when I was, you know, in middle school, high school. And so I had the opportunity to go and spend a month with him there and just kind of hang out, do some ministry things with him. It was a blast. But the first day there, we decided to go and do something fun. So we said, hey, let's go play some laser tag. Any, any laser tag fans in the house? The kids are gone. Oh, they're saying, some adults are here. Cool. Got to remember you guys are older. You know, don't go get some of those references. Don't get those references like the kids do. Uh, we started to go play laser tag. And, you know, when you get into the laser tag room, they give you that, you know, that, that vest or that jacket you put on with the little sensors that when the laser hits it, it goes off. And then you get your laser gun, right? And so we got the gear on. We went inside the room. And when you enter the room, it starts off kind of light, right? You can see the environment. You can look around and see the walls, the mirrors, all the different things. But then when the countdown ends, it goes dark. And it's already kind of, you know, smoky. But the, they really start, you know, getting those fog, those fog machines going. And it gets really smoky, really hazy in the room. And so we were going around, you know, sticking together as a crew, you know, trying to shoot people. And we were doing really good. We were winning, shooting lots of people. But all of a sudden, Pastor Bob, he sees someone in the distance. And so he says, I'm going to get this guy. So he raises his gun, fires the gun, hits him straight in the chest. But nothing happens. The man fires back, hits him directly in the chest. Pastor Bob's pack goes off. So he goes, that's weird. I thought I got him. So he tries again. He fires again. Hits him in the chest. Nothing happens. The man fires back, hits him directly in the chest. So he's a stubborn guy. So he's like, I'm going to keep trying until I get this guy's pack to go off. And so he gets a little bit closer. Fires again. Hits him in the chest. Nothing happens. He fires back again. And Pastor Bob's pack goes off. So he's, you know... Pretty, pretty determined to, to get this guy back. You know, this is three times in a row. He's getting frustrated. Clearly there's something wrong with that person's, you know, gear or something. Maybe he's covering it up. He doesn't know what, but he wants to get this guy. And so he gets closer and closer, and this, this situation is going on. He's firing. The guy's stuff is not going off. He's getting hit. And so he stops and he says, hey, is your gear broken? What's going on? I'm clearly hitting you. And the guy just stares back, says nothing. So he gets closer and closer, and this is still going on. He's still firing. He's still getting hit, but the guy is still okay. And they get so close that the tips of their guns meet. And I look over, and I shout, Pastor Bob, that's the mirror! <laughs> he spent five minutes shooting himself, having a conversation with himself, in a mirror. But the reason for that isn't just because... Hopefully he doesn't watch this. That's because he's old. Um, but because the environment of laser tag, that dark and smoky environment, made it difficult to see the actual appearance in the room. And that dark environment of laser tag, the, 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 the goal to distract us or to make it look as it doesn't, to make it look as it really isn't really, how it really isn't is, is how I feel the world is when it distracts us from a kingdom reality or what our true reality is as followers of Jesus. You know, we know what is true, but the world tries to distract us from that. But prayer is what refocuses us back from those worldly distractions onto Christ. And when we pray as Jesus did, it helps us to be aware of God's goodness and his will, and it frames our circumstances through his perspective, his lens, 
rather than on our own or that of the world. So I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning walking through Jesus' prayer and highlighting some things that will help us to better understand Christ's heart in it. And with that understanding, how we can then pray with a kingdom perspective as Jesus wanted his disciples to do. So let's begin by looking at verse 9. And in verse 9, we come to what they describe as the invocation of Jesus' prayer. Jesus introduces the prayer by saying, pray like this, which suggests that it is a pattern to follow in the disciples' own prayers rather than a fixed prayer. There's some freedom to be creative in how they pray, but they can use this as a framework. Notice he doesn't tell them to pray more, to pray harder, but to pray differently. It's not about praying the right words, but connecting with God through pure motivations. You know, for example, if, if you were to go on a date with someone, or if you were meeting someone new trying to build a friendship, your conversation in those moments are so important, right? Because conversation isn't just about small talk or trying to fill the silence and get, it, get past that hour, right? It might feel like that sometimes. But it's about connection and meaning that our words hold. And so when you're with someone on a date or when you're meeting a new friend, no one wants to go on that date or have that conversation where someone's only talking about themselves, right? Those are annoying conversations. We want to seek connection and meeting, and we want to be intentional in those conversations. That's why we don't just speak, but we listen, and we try to find common ground. And just like that, Jesus's, or the purpose of Jesus' prayer was to offer a way to pray with then pure attentions focused on God, not simply saying the right words or focusing only on our own needs, but exploring connection with God, praying with the attention that puts the focus back onto Christ. And so from the invocation, Jesus then turns his attention towards God's name when he prays, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so Jesus begins his prayer with adoration, acknowledging the positive characteristics of God, such as his holiness, and the term Abba, or Father in English, it may be difficult for some to grapple with because it can come with, you know, the baggage of historical patriarchy or perhaps even negative connotations that some of us may have um, with our own fathers. But the use of the word Father for those disciples, it had a lot of meaning because it made God intimate and accessible. You see, the temple was the training ground for prayer, and it taught them to pray with the utmost of reverence. They had a God of reverence, but not so much of intimacy. A God who was mighty in power, but really hard to get to know. And so the term Father, it brings into centrality the relationship, the intimacy between Father and his children. And so we share Jesus' sonship and his special filial relationship to his Father. And when we pray, we pray with the certainty that our Father is listening, the one who loves us deeply, who watches over us. There is a whole new intimacy and reverence in one's prayer life than the disciples realized. And so this demonstrates to us that God, yes, he's both intimate and reverent, he is the one we are to show honor to as well as the one we can turn to when we're going through a tough time and we're in need of comfort. We can share our struggles, celebrate our wins, 
He is on our side. He cares and he loves us deeply. And when we begin our prayer with adoration by acknowledging his good name and his character, it helps us to then pray with the pure intention or with the right intention. And our prayers come from a place of recognizing God as the one who then sustains us. In addition to this, though, the father, they weren't just the parent in the house. They were the head of the household. So by referring to God as the Father, there's that filial language again, but it's also an acknowledgement that the world is God's household. God is the one who owns, sustains, and runs the world. Everything belongs to God. So when Jesus then says, Hallowed, or holy be your name, it communicates the idea that the household in which God is the head is meant to reflect his character and his identity. And in that day and age, the reputation behind one person's name was worth more than riches or wealth. Your name meant a ton. It was important. So by acknowledging that God is holy, it communicates our identity as his children. And as members of God's household, we have kingdom identity. And as God is holy, good, and just, so are we to be reflections of him to our world. We're called to carry his hallowed or holy name to the ends of the earth. We are to embrace those kingdom principles that he calls us to live out. So when Jesus gives us this pattern of prayer, he's encouraging us to start by giving our full attention and imagination to God because then the prayers that come from that place will be based on his reality, not our circumstances. So what is Jesus teaching us in this first verse? Well, it's that God is relational and intimate, and our identity is found in his character. That brings us to verse 10 then, where Jesus moves from adoration to then intercession as he prays that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. And it's important to notice that the word kingdom to us sounds good, right? But in Jesus' day, it was a dangerous and political world. You see, Rome was a dynasty where Herod Antipas ruthlessly and violently ruled from afar. Anyone who opposed his kingdom was in danger of death. I mean, look at John the Baptist. Herod had him beheaded, right? So Jesus uses this kingdom language throughout his teachings because he had come to show that there is another way than that of the world. There's a kingdom founded on love rather than on power and authority. So remember that this prayer, though, it's a pattern for the disciples to follow. So by interceding that God's kingdom may come, it establishes that at the core of Jesus' prayer, what he's trying to do is invite us to participate. And so by praying that God's kingdom come and will be done, it's acknowledging that we ourselves have a role to play in making that happen. When we turn on the news and we scroll through social media and we find ourselves upset or frustrated by what we're observing, and when we pray, God, despite all this craziness in our world, may your kingdom come, your will be done, it offers the circumstances of our world to God, but then we must ask ourselves, how do I or how do we participate in bringing God's will into that situation? When it comes to our faith, it's very easy for us to simply pray, right? When someone we know has a need, the go-to Christian line is, I'll pray for you. 
And I won't get into whether we do that or not. I could probably have an article on that alone. Um, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> right? But what God is calling us to do isn't simply just to pray, but it's to ask ourselves, is there something more that I can then do? Yes, I'll pray. But how can I step into that situation on behalf of God? And if I can be honest with you, you know, the church today, we've really adopted the consumeristic nature of our society. You know, we come to church, but we're too busy to serve, or we're too busy to make time for community, or we go to church in hopes that it might make up for what we do the rest of the week that barely reflects that of God's kingdom. You know, we expect the church to provide this or to do that, but we don't stop and ask ourselves, what can I do. And I don't say that to make anyone feel, you know, judged or discouraged. I'm not trying to vent about anything. I'm trying to illustrate to you that what Jesus is doing is he doesn't just want our words. He wants our action. He wants our participation in his kingdom and his will in our world and in our lives. So we must ask ourselves, what does our prayers invite us to do? And it may just be simply praying. There are situations where all we can do is pray on behalf of someone else or the, the situation or the circumstances. But there may be times where God is inviting us to take, play a part in our prayers just as he works on behalf of our own lives. To give of ourself as Christ gave himself. So when Jesus prays, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven, it acknowledges that God's kingdom isn't just to come, but it's here and now. And if we pray as Jesus instructs, it requires us to participate in seeing his kingdom come. So to summarize Jesus' intercession in, in verse 10, heaven is the engine room and earth is where the action happens. Earth is the atmosphere that heaven invades in response to our prayers. So by interceding on behalf of God's kingdom and will, it once again invites us to align our minds and our hearts with that of Christ and invites us to participate in seeing God's will be done. So Jesus is teaching us that we're to align ourselves with God's kingdom and that we have a role to play in bringing heaven to earth. So Jesus then moves into the topic of, of sustenance in verse 12 as his prayer shifts towards three petitions. And the first is that God would give us our daily bread. Now, for us in America, the topic of sustenance is very different for those back in Jesus' day and age. You know, for many of us, we don't have to question, you know, when our next meal will come. For many of us, many of us here in the room, we probably already have our upcoming week of meals already planned. Now, we may not eat as extravagantly or as plentifully as we like, but we don't wonder, will I go a whole day without eating, right? And if you are, please let me know. We have an awesome food pantry that can help you, okay? So if anyone here is in that place, we have food for you, okay? But for most of us, we're probably not in that place, right? But back in that day, the topic of bread, it was another political word because due to the ruthlessness of the Roman Empire, many wondered when and where their next meal might come. And it wasn't a matter of having enough bread or producing the bread. It was actually an issue of distribution. How could they get it? Were they able to get it? And so in addition to this, though, many first century workers, they were paid one day at a time. They'd work a day, they'd get their pay. And if an if a individual 
was sick for a few days, it could lead to great tragedy for their family. So when Jesus asks for daily bread, it's a declaration that he relies on God for his daily needs. And even more than that, it reflects the attitude of taking life one day at a time, just like those first century day laborers. But they knew that with God in charge, each day, even though there was uncertainty, was taken care of by God. And so when Jesus prays, those who are Jewish, they would also think back to their deliverance from Israel, or deliverance from Egypt, they were Israel, when God provided manna or bread in the wilderness, right? So those listeners, they're drawn to consider how God will sustain them today just as he did in their historical past. So what does that mean for us? Well, exactly that, that he will and he still sustains us today. You know, we can all probably recall moments in our lives where we were stressed about having enough, whether it was the bills or, or health issues or, or, or issues at work or in our family. And if we look back at those moments, we remember that even though those moments were uncertain, that somehow we made it through with God's help. And when we face those moments then in the future, we can trust that God can and then will sustain us each and every day. So we ask God to care for our daily needs, not out of selfishness, but out of a reminder to ourselves that God can and will provide if we turn to him and seek out his help. He is our foundation. So Jesus is teaching us that God sustains us in the present so we can fully rely on him in the future. So in verse 12, Jesus asks God for provision of physical needs, but then he turns his attention to our spiritual needs in verse 12 as he asks God to forgive us of our debts. And what's interesting to notice is that the act of forgiveness is a characteristic of God's people since their very beginning. Now, we don't have proof of them actually doing it, to my knowledge, but the forgiving of debts was an important tradition. Levitical law stated that if someone was indebted to another so much where they couldn't pay it back, they were to work for that person until they paid their debt off completely. But here's the thing. They didn't work as a slave. They were to be brought on as a hired hand. And then, in the year of Jubilee, which happened every seven years, they were released from their labor completely debt-free. You see, this concept of forgiveness is something that God wanted his people to embody from the very beginning. God is a God of forgiveness, and we see it throughout Scripture. We see it in our lives. And so the point here is that our experience of forgiveness, it must result from a change of heart. We don't ask God for forgiveness in order to hopefully sway him in our favor like we might with a family member or a friend that we've hurt or offended. Rather, we ask forgiveness for our own sake, to position ourselves to be truly remorseful and desire to truly embrace God's kingdom and will in our lives and in our relationships even better than we did before. But Jesus then takes this topic of forgiveness one step further by asking, or by stating that if we are to ask for forgiveness of ourselves, we then must also forgive others. 
R.T. France, he writes that there is then something inevitably reciprocal about forgiveness. To ask to be forgiven while refusing to forgive is hypocritical. Those who ask for forgiveness must be forgiving people. Grant Osborne also writes that a renewed fellowship with God means the renewed fellowship with others in the community. Our forgiving of others is directly connected to the forgiving of ourselves. Because our anger towards others is often related to the guilt and the shame that we hold upon ourselves. And I would contend that one of the best ways to begin forgiving others in our lives is to start by beginning to forgive ourselves. So Jesus is teaching that we are to approach God with a genuine heart of repentance so that we can walk in freedom of God's kingdom as we in turn then forgive others and ourselves. And that brings us to the final petition of Jesus' prayer in verse 13, which is to not lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And this seems to imply that God leads us into the temptation, right? But what it is actually referring to is the idea that we all encounter te uh, tests and temptations in life. It's unavoidable. Jesus himself was tempted by the devil in the desert. So what puts this request of Jesus into perspective is noticing something unique about Jesus' other two petitions in the prior two verses. Because in verse 11, Jesus asks for daily bread, which is a need in the present. Verse 12 asks for forgiveness of sins, which typically refers to things done in our past. So this request to lead us not into temptation is the petition to protect us from future sins. We will face temptations, and we need God's help and strength to help guide us towards healthy decisions. So essentially, Jesus is demonstrating that we're to be so grounded and free from debts that we are not to be tempted in a way that causes us to contribute to the anti-kingdom actions of the world. Every single day, we are tempted to put aside God's kingdom and put ourselves first. And it often looks good in the moment. It may even feel good temporarily, but it only leaves us hurt and wanting more. You know, embracing God's kingdom, it protects us from the hardships that the world tries to repackage as success, happiness, and pleasure. It reminds me of a time when I was a child and my mom had a, a big giant chocolate, a big giant bar of chocolate, of, of baking chocolate. And I saw it on the counter, and I was like, this looks delicious. It's this giant bar, nice and thick. It smells like chocolate, looks like chocolate. Of course, it tastes like chocolate. I take a big bite. It was the most bitter and disgusting thing I had ever tasted. I did not like that. It looked good. didn't taste good. And that's just like temptation. It may seem good in the moment, but in the end, it leaves us unsatisfied. The world promotes a way that leads to disappointment. The world is swayed by the storms of life. But a foundation built on Christ, it will withstand every storm and it leads to true joy. So this prayer that Jesus is teaching is that we are to be so focused on the kingdom that we won't be swayed by the temptations or the hardships of life. Our future, just like our present and our past, is sustained by God. 
and we can put our trust and our faith solely in him, and he will sustain us. And Jesus' prayer is a reminder of that. So we've taken a long look at Jesus' prayer this morning and the meaning behind his prayer and the words that he used, but it may still leave you asking, now what? What do I do with this deeply profound prayer? I know more about it, but what do I do with it? Well, first, I want to point out that the Lord's Prayer is one that is centered on the kingdom. It's founded on Christ. You know, some scholars suggest that it shouldn't just be called the Lord's Prayer, but actually the disciples' prayer, because Jesus is demonstrating the type of mindset and prayer life his followers should have. So this prayer is more than something we look to with awe of how beautiful Jesus prayed, but it's something that we as Christ followers should embrace. Jesus' prayer invites us to ascribe ourselves to kingdom values and recognize our identity as his followers, his children. That sounds good once again, but what does that mean? Well, it looks like what Jesus taught us throughout his prayer, if we can see those things once again, if we can put that up there, is what Jesus taught us. Those different things, embracing these things, doing these things, they help us to live out our identity as his children. And so Jesus then gives us a pattern for prayer as a way that will help us to align ourselves and to align our minds and our hearts with these kingdom virtues so that it changes us to the core. So I want to give you Jesus' pattern for prayer so that we can begin to align our minds and our hearts with that of Christ. So these kingdom values and virtues, they begin to become on the forefront of our minds so that we can then live them out. So I want to show you Jesus' pattern for prayer. And it begins first with adoration. Acknowledging God's greatness, his character, his provision. Jesus prayed, our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Adoration. He then moves into recognition, aligning our hearts with that of God's kingdom. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. That's also intercession as well, right? Appealing on behalf of God for his kingdom, but then we can also appeal on the behalf of others, praying for the needs of those around us, praying for needs in our community, in our world, in our society. And then lastly, he ends his prayer with petition and asking for God's provision in our lives. Praying this way, it help us, helps us to recognize that God is already working and moving in our world and our lives. Sometimes we just need to stop and pay attention. And that's where healthy prayer comes into the picture, where we aren't just talking to God, but we are listening, reflecting, and developing connection, which then commits us to our identity as his children. So this morning, as we come to a close, I want to encourage you to live out Jesus' prayer. We have a great God who loves us deeply, who is inviting us to see his kingdom come and his will be done. But in order to do so, we must take the focus off of ourselves. Remember that God is the one who sustains us. So we don't have to worry about what may come. God has it handled. We can focus on Christ and seeing his kingdom come. 
Because seeing his kingdom come on earth as in heaven requires us who are on earth to recognize our identity and further his kingdom each and every day.